0: What is this, 56? sure. Welcome to episode 56 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig.
1: And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conant.
0: Let's see what's going on. Man, I don't even want to do the news. You guys can do the news. You guys can look up the news on your own. I
1: can do personal news that I became a grandmother.
0: Oh yeah, big news for Mandy.
1: (laughs) Yes, I'm officially old. I became a grandmother this week.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you, thank you. It was very early. It was much earlier than we planned, but he's here and he's healthy and he's doing really well.
0: And those are the important things. Yes. Before we get started, we did want to announce that we're changing the virtual meetups we've been doing. We've been calling them Zoom chat. They've been on Zoom. We've decided to stop using zoom no longer zooming we're currently trying out google meet and so i don't think you'll have it depends on what system you're on if you're on like a desktop you can just do it in your browser if you are on a mobile phone it will make you download a a small app but that was true of zoom as well so we apologize if you have to download a new app
1: you can delete zoom now
0: (laughs) the link for the chat will be in description for this podcast, wherever it is you're listening to it. It's also in a separate post at the Probably Polly Facebook page. We've had a couple of listeners ask if they could get an email about when we're doing these. If you would like to be on an email list about these posts, just go ahead and email me. We're going to a monthly format and it's not like a a set date either because basically as activities are reopening in America, which they shouldn't be given our numbers, it's horrifying and terrible and stay inside and wear your mask and socially isolate and do everything you can to help us not have anybody die but as that's happening we have obligations that make it so we can't guarantee the bi-weekly meetups that we were doing during the heavy lockdown so what we're doing is we're putting our schedules next to each other and we're committing to find one day a month instead to do the meetups
1: because we want to hang out with you so we're going to do what we can
0: well so we'll publicize those as much in advance as we can but not until we know when they are and here yeah yeah And with that, I'd like to jump right into our main topic, which is that One of the things I have read about a lot, but not really experienced myself too much, is the idea that a lot of people in polyamorous circles do a lot of gatekeeping. So I've seen people who I otherwise quite respect say, I don't identify as polyamory because there's so much gatekeeping inside of polyamory that I don't want to be associated with it.
1: People are real defensive of their labels.
0: (laughs) And you see this taking two main shapes. One is people who are very angry at someone they are seeing or went on a date with because that person did something which is quote unquote not poly. And they feel justified being angry at that person's behavior, even though they didn't necessarily do anything wrong, because it doesn't fit with their expectations of what a polyamorous relationship ought to look like, even if they haven't had that discussion with the person that they're dating, because they think that the term is somewhat more specific. And the second version is in groups which are labeled as polyamorous in some way. And members of the community will sometimes say about a discussion that whatever is happening, it's not really this group's job to discuss it, because what is being discussed isn't wrong per se, but just that it isn't... Oh,
1: that it's not poly.
0: Yeah, that it's not polyamory and you okay. really shouldn't be asking us about it because this is a place <laughs> for polyamory.
1: Wow. Go to another forum because we don't want that here. Yeah. Wow.
0: I guess what I don't get is how that's any different than when we talk about the problems where hegemonic monogamy tries to pretend that it has one definition as part of its attempt to pretend that it's always existed and is natural and is sort of a human domain fault and is the best thing to do and it's the same sort of problem which is a lot of different people have claimed the label polyamory Mm -hmm. a lot of different people live that label a lot of different ways as we've said before the people that coined the term meant it to be an umbrella term identical to ethical non-monogamy to mean ethical non-monogamy as ethical non-monogamy is currently understood and it was rejected for that for a lot of people but a lot of people like it for the same reason that it was coined, which is that it's very friendly sounding and not as hostile sounding. If you're trying to explain to your parents that you are polyamorous, that sounds a lot nicer than trying to explain to them that you are non-monogamous, because non-monogamous sounds like it's the anti-them.
1: Right, it's a negative as opposed to saying, I am this and then and, and, and saying, I'm not this. Yeah. yeah,
0: we know that humans are much better at being something than not being something. Right. For all good or for ill training purposes, right? So, like, it's the whole reason that sex-only education doesn't, I'm sorry, that abstinence-only education doesn't work. <laughs>
1: Can I get some sex-only education?
0: <laughs> yeah, right. If you just say, don't have sex, people have more sex. But if you teach people how to have protected sex, then they will have a lot more protected sex. Right. And so so this is the the purpose of the original coining of the term. While it's come to represent a specific subcommunity and capture something that a previous no previous terms had captured, and we're all very grateful for that. It still has a lot of diplomatic functions, and I also think that it does still have a wider umbrella available to its meaning than simply multiple romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. And as we've said before, it's also the capacity, not necessarily the current desire for multiple romantic re- relationships. So if you are in in a position where you accept the premise that your partner might one day develop romantic feelings for other people, and that that's okay, then I think you're polyamorous, even if you're not looking for that, as we've said before,
1: right, so then that's that comes to the argument of whether polyamory is a mindset, or it's an activity, or it's a lifestyle.
0: And this is my whole point is that there's no settled answer on that. Mm -hmm. So gatekeeping around that is just hurtful, it becomes problematic, for sure. Yeah, that it definitely tells people who they are and are not allowed to be in these spaces. And it's a lot about tone policing people to be like you. And I don't know what the value of that is. And honestly, I have been thinking a lot about the terms ethical non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy and polyamory recently, because I am trying to write about this. And to me, it's problematic. There still isn't what I would call a good term for what's going on. Mm -hmm. I used this term earlier today, and I've never used it before or even seen it anywhere else before, but it's sort of a direction that I'm going, which is to talk about the cultural mononormativity is not toxic monogamy which of course it is toxic but it's hegemonic monogamy i think it's a better term that more clearly captures what exactly is going on because the whole point of hegemonic structures so just very quick backflash in case you weren't around for the hegemony episode is hegemonies are systems that try to pretend to be monolithic but the way they retain their power and influence is by absorbing any group that becomes too powerful into themselves to stay as a majority and use that position to have a power dynamic relationship with the rest of the system. So hegemonic monogamy's goal is to there to be a good way to have a relationship. Capital G, big scare quotes. I have the best type of relationship because my relationship falls clearly within the rules of mm-hmm. hegemonic monogamy. So 50 years ago, hegemonic monogamy meant the wife never ever steps out for any reason. The husband may or may not have a mistress and the wife at least was a Virgin when they got married. Yeah. Virgin quotes. And no divorce. Right, and no divorce for any reason, even if there were problems right. or abuse or whatever else. No divorce. Till
1: death do you part. If you
0: were a divorce, you were a monster. Yeah. You were a pariah from the whole community. And wedding rings for both men and women. Mm-hmm. Before World War Two, there were no wedding rings for the man. That's that recent. Oh, wow. That during World War Two, because so many people were getting drafted into the war, a lot of people wanted something to remember their sweethearts by. So it came into vogue to get a wedding ring for the guy so that he could remember his partner. But wedding rings... The whole function of the wedding ring is, and the reason there's like a salary attached to it, like one third of your salary for the year or whatever, right. is it's supposed to be the woman's safety net that she can sell in case you abandon her or die. So you give the person a year's salary so that then, if you abandon them, they can find a small place to live. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. That's that's what that's what those I know. were. I I just
1: I never thought about it. Yeah, it's your little savings account on your hand.
0: It is. It's absolutely what it was. And so there was no reason for a man to have one because he was the earner. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason to force your income into that and even today of course if you do get one as a guy it's super simple it's just gold usually not super expensive etc but the point is that every 25 years or so monogamy has seen a complete and total overhaul in what counts Mm -hmm. as monogamy so in that 50 years ago period what people now call monogamy where you have multiple partners but only one at a time and then you end up with one of them for long periods of time and then maybe divorce and then get with somebody else for another long period of time would have been called serial non-monogamy serial monogamy yeah But as that became the norm, it was so much the norm that if you were going to continue saying that, you'd have to give up the idea that monogamy was the one right relationship style because it would have been in the minority. So in order to keep the power in the hegemony, the hegemony had to add that power block. So the hegemony went ahead and made that philosophically part of monogamy. Monogamy includes testing for your perfect mate. Right. And as long as your goal is aimed at a perfect mate, that's monogamy.
1: It became like one mate at one time.
0: And I think it still includes the philosophical claim that your goal is to find the perfect mate that you can stay with, but you shouldn't sacrifice. Oh, that you will die with. Yeah, that you <laughs> that you will die with. But you shouldn't sacrifice your happiness, because if you're unhappy, it means you just chose the wrong mate and your perfect mate still, like you can still find a perfect mate. Right. But, but philosophically, your goal is that. And people still definitely compare you and say you're better or worse at monogamy based on how long your relationships last.
1: Divorces and yeah. how
0: many divorces you've had. So there's still this prestige structure mm-hmm. based around getting closer to the core definition of monogamy. But the core definition of monogamy has shifted enough that for most people I know, there's actually a loss of prestige now if you're like the old gold standard monogamy. i.e., never have ever been with anyone but your partner.
1: Right. You get kind of laughed at.
0: Yeah. will like, how do you know what you like? How do you know you guys even right. have good sexual chemistry? You could have had way better. Better sex, maybe. You don't even
1: know what good sex is. Yeah. yeah, you
0: don't even know what good sex is. You just know this one person. You didn't know what was happening when you made your decision to be married. So now the goal of standard monogamy includes a respectable amount which differs by gender, sadly. Absolutely. Of pre-marriage partners into one permanent, non-cheating, non-mistress relationship. Mm-hmm. Totally different than 50 years ago. Yeah. Totally different than 50 years before that.
1: Oh, and let's be clear that the wedding bands are definitely more of a possessive token now.
0: Sure, sure. Why would you take your wedding band off? People need to know that you're owned. Right. By somebody else. Right. And people, of course, who are into objectification will even get mad if you don't wear yours. Like, how did I know you were someone else owned you? So I shouldn't be hitting on you. Right. Like I said, no, you should have taken no for no. It shouldn't require me to be owned by someone. But then, of course, then more recently, legally up until 10 years ago, but culturally up until maybe 20 years ago, gay marriage, not really marriage in the hegemonic marriage concept. Right. So obviously, there were lots of people that did understand that that was a valuable form of relationship creation. But hegemonic monogamy had not absorbed gay marriage into it until the very recent history. Yeah. And again, it got to a tipping point where basically people were going to start revolting against it as not being the gold standard of ethical relationships if it didn't allow people to be gay and be married. And the point is that all of that gatekeeping around what counts as monogamy is designed to create... Inferiority. Yeah, it's yeah. designed to create power imbalances that the people who participate in can leverage and which the overculture can use to attempt to control the behavior of people in that group against their own best interests. And so to my mind, it shouldn't be monogamy and non-monogamy. It should be hegemonic monogamy and then everything else, just relationships. Right. You know, that there's actually just relationships and how you choose to interact with people. And that what we're looking at, what I'm interested in is ethical relationships. I'm not interested in monogamous ethical relationships or non-monogamous ethical relationships. And what is going to count as a monogamous ethical relationship is going to be hugely dependent on what you want to call monogamy. Mm -hmm. Because monogamy has changed so much, but nothing that's ever been a key monogamous structure do I think I would be able to call an ethical relationship unless it's like too late to change you know so if you didn't know that there were other relationship options until you'd already been monogamous for 50 years. I can see how it's a little bit too late to change. You know, you're so invested in this concept that I don't like un. not that no one does. Some people unlearn that script. That's fine.
1: I was gonna say I know a lot of older people that didn't become
0: sure a lot of people do, you know,
1: not monogamous until they're really old.
0: But I can also see if I built my entire life and all of my choices around that for 50 some years. And then I learned there was another option. And I talked to my partner and I was. like this is this option is just it's too much emotional labor for me to understand at this point in my life and it's not worth the reward to do it you good and they were like yeah same boat and you're like pass (laughs) we'll
1: just stick with this (laughs) sure
0: that for me is fine as long as you understand that relationships that have more than two people can be ethically healthy and you don't look down on them or compare them to monogamy as your gold standard for a quality person Mm -hmm. the short version is projecting Unbreakable promises is objectifying, right? For either yourself or for a partner. So asking someone to say, "I'll never ever fall in love with anyone else," literally impossible. Yeah. They can make you that promise, but they have no meaningful ability to guarantee that that promise will happen. Which, of course, we know by the number of cheating in monogamous relationships, the number of divorces in monogamous relationships. We we just know that that's not a promise they're even really able to keep. So this is my problem: is that I feel like polyamorous gatekeeping is just like hegemonic polyamory that Mm. to the extent that I see people gatekeeping polyamory it tends to be I don't know what their initial goal is but I often see it used to make it more culturally accepted to actually make it closer to hegemonic monogamy so to say well polyamory is better because it's not just about sex right and even if they say something like it's okay if your relationship's just about sex but that's not polyamory I do feel like there is a elitism there that you're saying oh, it's cool if your relationships are just about sex, but I don't know that you mean it. Because if you meant it, I don't know why you would have a problem with people wanting to self-label as polyamorous when most of their relationships were just about sex from your perspective. Right. So, I mean, obviously there's the argument that words are more usable if they are clearer. So if they have a clearer definition that isn't muddied down, it transmits more information more quickly. But there's a thousand ways to be polyamorous, even if you're limiting it to multiple relationships. Right. All all we know if you're polyamorous for certain is you're able to have multiple relationships and you have not made a promise that you'll never fall in love with anyone else ever. Those are the only two things that we know for certain. Which, again, to my mind, are actually requirements of being ethically non-monogamous as well. So it isn't really mm-hmm. a letdown. And I know that might be semi-controversial for people but again, it's just objectifying to make that promise. I'm totally okay with you making promises like, my goal will be to stay only romantically interested in you or I will attempt to avoid that I don't think that's healthy or great for you and I'm not sure how good that is but a lot of people make a lot of decisions that I don't know how healthy they are and I think people have to be able to make their own decisions try their own trial and error but to say you know I will never love anyone else I'll never stop loving you these aren't promises that you can make relationships are living breathing things just like people are
1: right and you know the divorce rate definitely attests to these promises not being able to be made.
0: Absolutely. And so there's already a hundred million ways to do polyamory, just like there's honestly an infinite number of ways to do hegemonic monogamy. The most important thing is going to be to have the discussion about what that looks like to you early and often mm-hmm. with people that you're dating.
1: Yeah, we've said that
0: before. Make sure you revisit it. Yeah. But if that's the case, then what is the point of gatekeeping the term? Yeah. Who are you limiting the term's description for? What's your motivation? Think about what it means to you to limit the term. It's got to mean, I assume, something like, It makes me look bad when people identify as polyamorous who are X. And that's straight up just elitist thinking, Mm -hmm. trying to cultivate like a hegemonic polyamory and a power dynamic and a place of prestige because of the type of relationship that you have.
1: Right. And then that goes back to the people who think that polyamory uh, is superior to any other relationship and that people who practice polyamory are more enlightened and have this pedestal look about them.
0: Yeah, and I've definitely seen that, and that's always problematic. There's no evidence in any anywhere that polyamorous people are ethically significantly better than other groups, or that we're smarter. There's no evidence of any of that. I mean, the only thing that I know for sure is that polyamorous people are on average whiter and more middle class. That's the only thing that I've seen studies proving. And the more you gatekeep, the more that's going to continue to be true as well. Mm -hmm. Because obviously a lot of groups have non-monogamous relationship structures that fall predate the modern coinage of the term polyamory and if you're going to hold them to very specific norms that you're devising for the term they're not going to want to participate in that because who wants to really participate in anything that's a motion towards freedom and open love where other people tell you what that is right
1: nobody wants to be in that club nobody wants to nobody wants to join that club because it's oppressive
0: yeah I don't know maybe maybe it's just difficult because Obviously, polyamory has been my home. It's the name of our podcast, etc. But it certainly does bring up the question from time to time if it's polyamory is salvageable as a concept. Yeah. You know, because I know it's so weird because I feel like so few other groups would have that note in them. Like even where certain things are discouraged, in most groups, I don't feel like people would say that you're not swinging if you're open to the potential of developing feelings. If
1: you fall in love with them. Yeah. yeah. I don't
0: think they're like, you just, you're no longer a swinger. You fell in love with someone. You, you drop me just, we throw you out of the swinger club. Now you're polyamorous. Get out of here. You're
1: right. You don't, you don't get to come to the clubs anymore. No more swinger clubs for you. You fell in love with somebody.
0: You're yeah, too dangerous. You know, even though obviously a lot of swinging couples become long term couples swinging that swing together over a long period of time and develop deep emotional bonds. And that's common in the community and not necessarily the most supported, but it's not like people throw you out when they realize that's not like you become poisoned and you're no longer a, oh, you're ruining the swinging atmosphere, falling in love with the people that you're (laughs) sleeping with. That's the worst sin. You're making us look bad. Yeah, you're making us look... It's fine that you want to fall in love with someone, but that's not swinging. Can you not call it swinging? Yeah. Yeah, Can you just use a different word for that and maybe also dot com to a swinging support group to talk about it you might want to go look at over that poly group you know like that's the thing that kills me is i just don't get i don't get that level of gatekeeping polyamory started as an umbrella term i think that the the core difference is that i think there's a philosophical difference to some extent which is i do think most people who are ethically non-monogamous but actively reject the polyamorous label for reasons other than that they can are concerned that it's potentially classist white heteronormative and otherwise problematic or gatekeeping if they're not rejecting it for those reasons they tend to be rejecting it because they do reject the premise that i have noted which is the premise that one cannot promise exclusive romantic content forever because Mm -hmm. the people that had historically rejected polyamory like swingers were one of the first groups to reject polyamory on the note we don't fall in love with the people that we're sleeping with and obviously aromantic people right to me polyamory is still a term that all it tells me is you know that you can't promise never to fall in love with someone else or that at least the option to work through you falling in love with someone else is always going to be there. Right. That's fair. It may not be that you successfully work through that. As people know, people transition relationships up and down. and <sighs> Yes, we do. People move away from being core relationships or romantic or drop out the romantic component or add in the romantic component or drop out the sexual component or drop out both components. So obviously that sort of stuff happens. And I think you can project ideal goals. I certainly tell my partner, my goal is to stay romantically and sexually interested in them for all of my life yeah i would like to and i would like to work with you on it because i think it's a thing you have to work on if it's going to happen yep i like to do this together and
1: we'll talk about that if it's changing
0: right and we'll do our best to find something that works for both of yeah. us as much as we can and honors our commitments to each other as best as we can
1: why is it so hard for people why are all those words so hard for people <laughs>
0: Well, that's, a, that's a different question, although that's a really good question. I mean, <laughs> I think that one's just rooted in shame, to be quite honest. I've often talked about how much I hate shame. I really don't like it. I don't like guilt. I don't like shame. I don't
1: think anybody likes shame to receive it anyway. No, no. I mean, <laughs> I don't
0: like it as an emotion. Oh, OK. I feel like it's a counterproductive emotion, like disgust is a counterproductive emotion. So like disgust at some point was a good, not good, sorry, a successful evolutionary component. Disgust had you kill things that you did not understand and destroy things things that hit certain severe difference from yourself when the stakes are life and death this is pretty successful and also when you're the one doing the killing it tends to promote your own genetic structure which means you tend to propagate forward which is what evolution is about evolution is not ethics obviously Mm -hmm. evolution is highly unethical in most cases So, you know, if you saw someone and they looked way different than you, you're having a disgust response allowed you to get rid of them and take from them.
1: But was that a disgust response or was that a fear response? Because we fear what's different.
0: Okay, so fear motivates you to run away from something. Disgust motivates you to destroy it. Okay. Disgust is the emotion that is almost always present before violent attacks, not anger and not fear. Hmm. Anger is actually primarily associated with disruptions with people you care about. So you tend to get angry at people that you want to listen to you. So like you get angry at your kids all the time, but you don't often get disgusted at your kids.
1: No, but I thought that fear was what turned on the fight or flight response.
0: Well, disgust is intertwined with fear as well, right? Disgust is a fear at some level of the thing corrupting you somehow. Okay. If you see like a rotting frog and you get the heck away from the rotting corpse thing, you know, the disgust at base is designed to keep you away from things that are a risk to you. So
1: disgust is more related to threat than fear, really.
0: I don't know if threat is accurate. I mean, I know threat's not an emotion, but I mean, I guess you could feel threatened. The threat presumably evokes the fear response. Okay. And obviously you can have a fight or flight response in a fear response, but in most fear responses you don't have a strong desire to kill whatever it is that you're afraid of. So imagine, you know, you're out somewhere, like I was out hiking the sun went down while and I was stuck hiking. And I'm hiking with my partner. They're tiny. I'm worried about their safety. I'm kind of worried there might be psychos out in the woods in the middle of the night, and I hear an incredibly loud noise really close to me like 10 feet away freaks me out insanely the emotion and feel that are going through my body are you know so i like i scream into the darkness and take a position to try and figure out if i'm fighting this thing or running from it my plan is fighting because my partner can't run very fast compared to me so i can't just run i'll just leave them there to die that's not happening so i'm gonna fight they're gonna run it's gonna be all right but my goal is to avoid the conflict i don't even know what's out there it's just scaring the shit out of me.
1: Right. Everybody's
0: safer if you just hide. Yeah, I just, I don't want to deal with this. I want to scare it back. Yeah. Thus the yelling and the posturing and the hoping that it gets run away. And it turned out it was a it was two deers headbutting and I screamed and they ran away. <laughs> but in that moment, those were all the emotions that went through me. Like that was a mm-hmm. deafening clack. What was that? What's going on? How do I handle this? And both I and the deer were afraid and the response was that everyone just scattered. There was no fight. There was no hunting the other person down and murdering them horribly. We just We just didn't want to be in that fight anymore. <laughs> right because we were afraid disgust is what motivates you to hunt something down that's not a threat to you okay but you perceive it as a threat to you it's an avoidable threat you could get you could get away from it but you just want it to cease existing that's what disgust is okay shit what was the question that I was starting to ask sorry yeah <laughs> <laughs> you got an original question where I got off on this side tangent where you asked why do people do what
1: oh why why is it so hard for people to grasp that this is what I'm gonna try to do this is what this is what ideally I would like and if we can't do that like then we'll reassess
0: and oh right and we were on negative emotions like shame and I was like how disgust oh, is that. Right. okay cool yeah. cool now I know where we're at all right. Yeah, no, we're good. All right. So to go back on the topic that we had been talking about, why it's difficult for people to meet their commitments rather than flee from difficult emotional contexts. Yeah. Which that's what ghosting or disappearing or running away is. It's fleeing. And I was saying that I think that it is sort of a shame problem. And then we, Manny, asked some questions about disgust versus fear versus... So we got off, but back. So this is one of those things that's fascinating is watching my son develop shame. And it is it's never, ever helpful. Every time his shame response is triggered, he shuts down. He can't have any conversation about what's going on. We can't work on the problem together because he just feels an overwhelming discomfort that he like has a driving need to make go away by any means necessary. Mm -hmm. That can be curling into a ball and sticking fingers in his ears as long as he doesn't have to feel that shame. Right. Which is where lying comes in too. And it's always hugely counterproductive for him mm-hmm. because it's always like he did something really small like he was playing with his brother and he's four so he lacks motor function and accidentally knocked him over and we're like hey we just need to talk to you about how you can play safely with your brother and then we can go back to doing whatever we're doing and he just can't have that conversation at all yeah and it takes like 20 minutes and we got to give him a time out to chill and sort of get him to the place where he feels like he can talk to us and get him past the initial shame response and, and then when we start having the conversation the shame comes back and then he shuts down again and it's like so it's a cap on how long we can have the meaningful discussion
1: and he's four
0: and we've never shamed him
1: right so that's how most adults handle shame though
0: Well, but but that's the point, though. Most adults have a lot more experience with people actually trying to shame them. Yeah. He's never had any experience where we tried to shame him, and his response is that strong. Yeah. Whereas most people that you're going to deal with, that I'm going to deal with in our age groups, in the 25 plus age group, still did not come out of a particularly progressive era of child rearing. Yeah. So they came out of the era where... We were taught shame. We were first certainly taught shame. Emotional shame was almost the exclusive punishment that I remember being subjected to as a child. Yeah. And that was a huge improvement. I will take emotional shame over beatings. Yeah. But I don't think emotional shame is great, but I understand it. As a parent, I certainly am experiencing levels of futility and frustration that I'm just not sure what to do with them that make me want to lash out with shame. or And so our, our society is obviously built on shamed control people and built on moral shaming right so the whole idea that people who are in prison get what they deserve when we know that prisons have impossibly high mortality rates when we know that there's basically nothing imaginable for a human that's crueler than solitary confinement and we even have it in our constitution that we can't use cruel and unusual punishments, but we have solitary confinement for people. Yeah. And our justification is that's not a punishment. It's a, a systematic necessity because there are some people that we don't know how to keep safe if we don't isolate them from the prisoners. And there's some people that we don't know how to keep the prisoners safe from them if we don't isolate them from the prisoners. Right. So we're not doing that as a punishment. It's just necessary for the system to function. And we know that that's just literally torture for humans. It's amazing how important that is. So in studies that you know you could never do today because they're horrific, there's famous bonding studies about i think it's macaques where they took the babies away from the mothers and then they made fake mothers one of them out of wire and one of them out of a stuffed animal and the wire one had working milk and the macaque babies would cuddle the cuddly mom until they died because that sense of touch and protection and mm-hmm. human interaction and contact is so important for primates it's so key to being a primate to being a social animal that it's more important than food like <laughs> Yeah. You know, so the idea that that's not cruel and unusual is just insane. And Hippel's response is, well, then they shouldn't have committed a crime. And you're like, yeah, but we've criminalized stuff that has no negative consequences. Right. And their response is, yeah, but you knew it was a crime. So even though it shouldn't be a crime, since it is, you shouldn't have done it. And if you did do it... Shame on you. Well, then whatever happens to you, you deserve. But then, of course, those same people would do anything imaginable to avoid getting caught for a crime. Mm -hmm. If they committed a crime on purpose or by accident, they would do everything they could to avoid getting caught by it. They would not be trying to honorably go, oh, yes, I did that. And I deserve whatever the outcome for that is, because the outcome is very clearly undeserved, that it's far beyond the crime. And I guarantee you,
1: if they got caught for the crime, and they got the punishment, they would be arguing that it was undeserved as well.
0: (laughs) Oh, sure. Well, and so you think about, you know, the evolution of human emotions, the the value of shame was a couple of things. One is that in a society or a scenario where other people can literally kill you for behaving badly if they decide to, and often did, shame had the function of being a non-lethal punishment and being easily shamed often protected you from worse punishments. So you were caught doing something you shouldn't, then you were clearly horribly shamed and you expressed that emotion and everyone could see it. They felt like there was a good chance you weren't going to repeat that crime.
1: Right. There's no need to punish you.
0: Yeah, we don't have to punish you. You've already yeah. been punished by the shame.
1: Right. You're punishing yourself enough, that kind of right. thing. Yeah.
0: And, and so the ability to produce those sorts of responses are key to human survival like It's why we have over the top responses to stressors like blushing when we're caught doing something we shouldn't because those sorts of quote unquote honest responses make us seem more trustworthy and understandable to people who might have caught us behaving badly so they catch you behaving mm-hmm. badly and you are actually embarrassed by your behavior or you're actually shamed by your behavior then okay you're not going to do that again we know because like you said you punished yourself.
1: Is embarrassed shame.
0: No, embarrassment is a different experience than shame. They're meaningfully different emotions.
1: Like guess shame you did something bad and embarrassment you did something dumb.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because like, <laughs>
1: embarrassment a lot of
0: times is more like, I don't think I'm going to get punished for this, but I just think it's ridiculous that I did this or I don't like how you see me now.
1: Okay, okay. Whereas
0: shame is the feeling that like you've done something
1: wrong, inherently wrong.
0: Unforgivable wrong yeah. and you're going to get punished that... The horrible things are coming and you deserve it okay yeah i think it's the you deserve it part the shame like i deserve bad things okay whereas embarrassment you don't generally think you deserve further punishment like the embarrassment's the punishment you're just yeah oh man i can't believe i did that kind of thing yeah and so there's like an evolutionary timeline for emotions i don't you know exactly know which one came first but why is anger almost always directed towards people you care about why is it a different emotion emotion than hatred or disgust and the answer is because evolutionarily. Being able to control the behavior of people around you is is a very successful evolutionary behavior, but it's not a very ethical one. So anger allows you to express terrifying emotional rage that controls people's behavior around you. And we know this from abuse, right? That in abuse, Mm -hmm. people use anger as a way to control you. You just make me so mad. I'm not really a bad person, but if you didn't make me so mad, I wouldn't do that to you. And that's basically what the function of that emotion is. The function of that emotion is to get control of other people by expressing frustration at them. It's a very different emotion, which is why anger so rarely leads relative to the amount of time, that people experience extreme anger to intentional death. Anyway, accidental is a different question, but like an intentional mm-hmm. follow through is rare, relatively rare with anger responses, because they're control responses. They're meant to control people that you want to keep in your life. They're not evolved to control people that are not part of your social structure.
1: Yeah, I've heard that that you really only get angry about people you care about. Or angry with people you care about. Yeah, Yeah. you
0: you hate people you don't care about. Yeah. Hatred is a very different emotion. If you've ever felt hatred, it's not anger. Anger is just like a, why would you do that? What is wrong with you? I can't, why? You know, where hatred is like, I want that thing to end. I want it gone, whatever the cost. So you have this sort of uh, arms race with emotional content because people start developing anger to control people around them and that can be dangerous. And so people start developing shame and guilt to assuage anger as a method of avoiding beatings and avoiding those sorts of controls and yeah. participating in the system. The question is in an entirely evolutionarily novel world, which make no mistake, nothing left in your life is evolutionarily structured anymore. Every single part of your life is now evolutionarily novel. So that means that you have to question why you're doing or feeling certain things. And this is interesting because I do a lot of meditation. And one of the things that meditation talks about is how most of what meditation and mindfulness does is it attempts to short circuit these systems that are just not helpful. Yeah. If you're not living a wilderness lifestyle, like I tell my son that if I'm having a real conversation about how his behavior could be better for us, could be more positive for the family and for himself, it will always sound like what I sound like right now. It'll sound calm. I'll ask him why he did something. I'll tell him what the consequences are if he acts differently. And then if I'm yelling, and it's not like a no, don't you'll get hurt, but like an angry to protect him. Yeah. Yeah. If it's not like a if It's not like a don't wait, caution yell. But if it's an angry yell, then I'm not doing anything helpful and that he doesn't have to like listen to me. He can be like, dad, you're yelling, dad, you're angry, because that's just me trying to control him. It's not Mm -hmm. me wanting to work with him.
1: So he understands and yeah, because
0: we know that they don't. We know that kids do not understand via yelling, right? Well, they shut down. Yeah, expressions of anger have outcomes as lesser elements of of physical abuse. Mm -hmm. When you yell at people, we see outcomes identical to low level physical abuse. Yeah, you know, as, as spanking also has outcomes like lesser versions of larger physical abuse. And then obviously physical abuse has... In certain outcomes and none of those outcomes are good you might get the behavior that you're hoping for short term in the moment while you're physically yeah. watching that person but their total net behavior is just going to get worse everywhere so if you actually want to help your kid yelling at them expressing anger at them is not helpful it just terrifies them and causes them to shut down and teaches them that they can't talk to you about things this is also mm-hmm. true for our partners for instance and so the answer is that we don't have a lot of as a society i don't think we have a very Clear sense about appropriate expressions of emotions or rather ethical expressions of emotions. So, most people have been subject to damaging, manipulating, controlling emotions for most of their life.
1: From somebody in their life, yeah.
0: Yeah, from somebody important in their life for most of their life, who almost all of their formative years for sure, and probably in a significant number of their relationships. Yeah. So that when they're then called upon to figure out what to do in an emotionally tense scenario, that emotionally tense scenario is terrifying. Yeah. And it triggers their desire to run. Because
1: they don't want to be yelled at.
0: Right, because they're afraid you'll be yelled at, they're afraid they'll be hurt, and they're just too scared to do those things. And so the, the cost benefit analysis if they're doing a conscious one and the emotional uh, analysis that happens unconsciously both come back with a this is too much i'm out yep so like the last person i was dating ghosted me and i thought we had a very good talking relationship but a lot of their at least what they said their concern was was that being around me made them feel like a bad person because i had a higher standard of ethics than they had even encountered before and they were constantly feeling like they just weren't a good person and feeling shame for it. And they were from a traditionally conservative Southern Christian kind of background right. where whatever the right thing is, it's objective and obvious. And if you're not doing the right thing, then you're an idiot.
1: And it's the only right thing.
0: There's only the right thing and the wrong yep. thing. And everything that isn't the right thing is the worst thing you could do imaginable.
1: Oh, wrong. Absolutely awful.
0: Yeah. So like when they were talking about how their dad had put in security motion sensor lights around their house, mm-hmm. and I was like, those are problematic for light pollution and all also for animals in a world where increasingly we very much need less light pollution and more animals if we're going to survive but i also understand that you live alone and are still a young woman and that there's a significant concern there for your safety and so i can see how you're trying to balance those things and that makes sense all she could hear was you're harming the environment you're a terrible person because you don't have the best possible answer to this and i was really trying to say it's a complicated question and there's ups and downs to everything that you can do and i have historically avoided using these options Because I'm concerned about these environmental issues more than maybe my own safety, because I don't think I'm really unsafe. But I also have different safety concerns. And so you have to be able to sleep at night and feel good about yourself. And so that would happen over and over and over. And so they're one of the people that ghosted me. And I think they ghosted me because they felt like talking to me they would feel bad about even breaking up with me like he's such a good good air quote because again objective goodness right like such an ethical person how what you know breaking up with someone for being too ethical feels so wrong and they'd have to be subjected to that sensation and so it was just a lot easier to shut that off close it down and not have to think about any of those things anymore and there is sort of a honestly if we're not going way out of our way to see each other as a relationship are we really going to do well just being friends yeah kind of question
1: you're just on two very different ends of the spectrum and yeah
0: still shouldn't have ghosted you. No, I, I think that's right. I think that that would have still been better and it would have been totally fine to even have had a discussion. Like, do you really want to get together after this? Should we just be casual friends at sometimes right. message? Or do you want to mutually agreeably ghost? I'm going to be honest. I think in a lot of cases where people have ghosted people, if they'd gotten together and asked, let's talk about this over a couple month period. But honestly, do you really want to still talk to me? Let's just cut this. Yeah.
1: Mutual ghosting isn't ghosting though. That's just cutting everything off.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's agree. Mutually agreed. Yeah. This isn't helping <laughs> anybody. But that's my point. That it should be what the goal yeah. ought to be. But that the big thing to getting to being able to do that is unlearning your shame and embarrassment responses. Mm-hmm. That those responses people have taught you are good and necessary, and it's how you stay being a good person. But it's not. It's how you stay being a controlled person. Yeah. It's how you let other people control and manipulate you out of doing what you think makes sense. Because if you thought that what you did made sense and then people shame you for it, then they're not actually convincing you. They're causing you mental and emotional pain to force you into doing what they want you to do. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very different than actually getting your buy-in. Right. You know, we talked about this before. People are not good at breaking up or transitioning. Our society does not value those skills because, again, Mm -hmm. we're starting to get to the point where we have younger people in our group that have always been non-monogamous, that have always been polyamorous, which is great. Yeah. But most of the people that we're talking to were monogamous or the minimum were drowned in monogamous scripts for their entire life until very recently. And so nobody taught you how to break up. I've never seen a movie that demonstrated good breakup skills. Yeah, I've seen lots of movies that were designed to teach you like how to get the girl.
1: I'm trying to think of a good movie that that shows like a good breakup and I can't think of one but I want to say that I've seen one so let me th- let me think about it
0: <laughs> all right go for it
1: I'm not gonna give it to you in the next 20 minutes so
0: I just <laughs> I mean I'm sure there's a movie somewhere but I mean yeah. it's like one movie in a million yeah any kind of relationship end is always shown as an impossible shit show right and almost always and I think this is weird like 80 or 90% of the time shown as being a mistake that if the show bothers to continue showing you two people. People who either broken up or tried to stop being friends or otherwise downshifted a relationship, the long-term outcome is that they'll get back together, that they'll get back to being best friends, that they'll get back to having that relationship. That the moral of the story will be that their mistake was in leaving. And I think that people carry that combination of the script that says breaking up is a failure. Mm-hmm. So that if we talk about what we're doing and how we're breaking up and how we're downshifting, what I'll actually feel is failure and shame for having been so stupid that I would get involved in this failure rather than feeling rewarding for taking care of somebody else and actually meeting your emotional obligations to people that you've made so many promises implicitly and explicitly to. And that you'll be tempted to try and get back into the relationship with them. And that again, nobody, nobody ever taught me how to break up with anybody. Yeah. I mean, I didn't actually get taught anything about relationships, which was my big problem with relationships. But to the extent that movies and friends taught me anything, it was all how to get the date.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't I was never taught how to break up with somebody or how to how to have a healthy breakup.
0: Yeah, no. You
1: just kind of oh, all you just Figure all that out on your own.
0: Yeah, it was only after I'd gone through like three or four breakups that I realized, man, I'm actually really bad at breakups and honestly quite unethical about breakups. Like not intentionally, but because I just have no skill set associated with breakups. It's like I'm drowning when a breakup happens and I just have no ability to navigate that at all. Right. People who have been listening since the beginning of the show or gone back and listened to the archive will even remember that as early or as recently as two years ago, I had relatively recently still done a breakup where I sent that person into a six month ostracization cycle so that I wouldn't have to deal with it emotionally. (laughs) That as recently as two years ago, at 36, as someone who professionally studies ethics and does nothing but try and think about how to be a more ethical person, I Mm -hmm. was still hurting people during breakups and running from having the actual emotional maturity to deal with those breakups. Because There's still nothing on that. I have not read anything in any of the non-monogamy or polyamory books that I've read. None of them have a section on breaking up ethically. No. Still sort of focused on how to not break up. That is a laudable goal. Making the relationships last when both of the people in the relationship want the relationship to last is something that you should do. But knowing that you can't force a relationship to last, I think creates the ethical obligation to prepare yourself for if the relationship is going to end and to assume that it will. I mean, of the people that I know, 95 plus percent of the relationships end. Yeah. All but a couple of relationships. If you're really lucky, two or three relationships in your life, romantic relationships. And if you're really lucky, maybe four or five, six or seven total relationships 10 maybe if you're including family will make it and i don't mean that as like that's the goal i just mean it is like if that happens you don't have to figure out how to break up with them right or transition the relationship you you don't need this skill But in almost every other relationship that you'll have, hundreds of relationships that you'll have in your life, having an ethical position and skill set on how to transition it down, how to handle it afterwards, what you owe to each other afterwards is super important. And that we're going to have to save for another day because we're definitely at time on our episode.
1: I don't think we got off topic. I think we just made it a broader topic.
0: So I think that's right. I think that in the end, gatekeeping is mostly mostly probably a shame response that you're trying to... have a label that you think that you can use to justify your position. But that that shame response is part of a controlling system that you're just used to. It's another one of the hegemonic scripts that you've absorbed during your time in hegemonic monogamy is that there's better relationships and worse relationships based on structure and not based on outcome. Because obviously, there's more and less ethical relationships based on the actual ethical outcomes of the relationships that you're in and having more pro social, more ethical relationships that are more positive experiences Experiences for the people in them is super important and something to strive for. But if you're striving for it and if you're doing your best, it's certainly nothing to feel shame for that you're not at the same point as other people. And that kills me because honestly you have no idea what your relationship is based on during the whole first two or three months or whatever it is that you're in NRE. That could be an all-sex relationship that your brain is tricking you into thinking is a relationship with a person. Mm-hmm. It could be a relationship with a person that your brain is tricking you into thinking is sexual. Who knows what's going to come? Like, And there's nothing special about the fact that you're currently under the assumption that it's got emotional legs. Yeah. Like, again, that just that's that same thing as hegemonic monogamy, right? That hegemonic monogamy, which is what you're used to, says, as long as I'm aimed at one person for life, I'm a better person than if I'm not. Right. And I feel like this hegemonic polyamory motion is just as long as I'm aimed at having romance with everyone I'm trying to sleep with, I'm having better relationships. Right. And if I'm not aimed at that. Yeah. And I just don't hold to that. That's just that doesn't matter. Yeah. People get to choose what the labels mean to them and polyamory Emery's history, it means so many different things and has so many different uses and starts as an umbrella term and the whole idea that there are people running around going, that's not Polly, you're not Polly. And that... Actually, does lead to hatred, anger, and disgust in our communities because people will do something that someone will think that's not poly, and then yep. they'll get mad at them and say, I am justified in being mad at you because you aren't being poly. You told me you were poly, but you're not, and you're lying. Right. And they'll say, Well, I just don't think poly means that. And they go, No, it means a specific thing and you're using it wrong. So if we can all just agree that you can't use it wrong and educate people about that, yep. then people won't be screwed. Screaming about how you're not poly enough.
1: And that your poly doesn't necessarily have to look like someone else's poly and their poly's not gonna look like your poly. And as long as we recognize that and communicate when we start relationships and touch base again, there's no reason for the gatekeeping. So don't let anybody yeah. don't let anybody do that. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't use a label that you identify with.
0: Yeah, well, and then the other thing that kills me is specifically the idea that polyamory relationships have to be potentially emotional. To me, just sounds like slut shaming. Yes. Uh, And that's what I've seen it used to do. That's the only thing I've seen it really used to do is I've seen it, I mean, in practice, I've seen people gatekeep what counts to try and keep out problematic people, which I understand because that's just a low investment response. So if someone does something that you don't like and you can just tell them what's not poly, now you don't have to explain to them what they're doing wrong or why it's unethical or why it's problematic. You can just go get out of here, get out of my space. Yeah. I see it used to do that. But what I really see it being used to do is to slut shame people and say, I went on a date with this woman and I thought she was polyamorous And she identified as being polyamorous. And then she tells me on the date that she's not currently emotionally available and just wants an all sex relationship and how is that poly? How can she call herself poly? Like, that's bullshit. And I'm like, okay, that's just slut shaming. You're just mad because she didn't want from you what you wanted from her and she was very upfront with you about what she wanted in that scenario. Just be ethical in relationships and communicate. People try and use polyamory to shame people into having the kind of relationship with them that they want to have with them and say it's not polyamory if you don't do whatever behavior it is.
1: It's just not your poly.
0: And so this is my point that even if you think that your gatekeeping is gatekeeping a really good sense of polyamory the fact is that you're contributing to gatekeeping as a control mechanism because as long as gatekeeping is something that people think is ethical and okay to do around what's good enough or counts as polyamory it's going to be a tactic that people can use intentionally or unintentionally i don't think people are doing this on like a conscious level but to manipulate their partners to justify anger responses to justify shaming and to justify hierarchy of relationship quote quality Mm -hmm. based on better or worse concepts yeah i think that's good yeah all right everybody good night see you next time thanks for listening
1: goodbye everybody thank you for listening
0: bye